I didn't come to drugs um, for an escape. Mm. Like they sort of like triggered this level of anxiety. And then I started using as a little bit of a means of escape, but it wasn't ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I want like things to know. I want you with that. Yeah, because that that triggered your anxiety quite greatly. Oh yeah, because your experience in that state. Yes, and then because anxiety is about fear. Yeah, and suddenly your perception of the world became immensely. The world is now scary after this experience. Yeah, absolutely. Where before that, I don't think you saw it in that light. Yeah. From this distant vantage point, the Earth might not seem of any particular interest. But for us, preserve, cherish, the only home we've ever known. The Pale Blue Dot. Alrighty, gang. Welcome back to another episode of the MindMate Podcast, starring your host. Gee, starring, that's a little bit arrogant. But anyway, starring your host, Tom Ahern. That is me. G'day, g'day, g'day. Hey, uh, what I've been thinking about doing lately is re-releasing all of my videos from YouTube, all my interviews with the experts and chucking them into podcast formation. So we're going to uh, mix and match here for the next couple of weeks. We're going to do some new shows. We're going to mix them with some uh, some old shows as well uh, because there's a ton of value with these ones. So these ones are fantastic and there's something I've actually been honing back in on and, and, and watching recently and um, I'm, I'm fucking loving them. So this one, this, uh, this is my first ever interviews with the experts. It's an absolute ripper. It's with my former psychologist and good friend, uh, Michael Inglis, who we've had on my other podcast, which is Adventure Fit Radio. So I actually went down to the mine room in Melbourne, which is his practice, and we had a great chat about mental health um, and kind of like the modern take on it. What, what are some of the, I guess, modern day clinical approaches to mental health and, and different diagnoses and things. There were two parts on YouTube, and for today's purposes, we're going to square them both together in a, uh, a sensational little number here for you. So this is going to be a good one, guys. I'm pumped to hear your uh, your feedback for this, and I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to seeing what you have to say. So without further ado, here's Michael Inglis. Well, I've just uh, parked at the Mine Room, which is a place in Collingwood here in Melbourne, and uh, it feels pretty strange, to be honest with you. It's um, it's where my old uh, where my old place of, uh, of habitat was when I was going to see my my psychologist, who we're going to interview today, the uh, the great Michael Inglis. Um, it's a little bit nostalgic, but it's just kind of weird because you know this was sort of two two three years ago now, and um, every time I'd step out of the car to to walk in there, I was just panicking the whole time. It was just complete complete anxiety, and um, it just feels very strange to be walking there now feeling great, feeling absolutely, you know, fear-free and, and on top of the world. And um, I, I guess this is my my goal with with, um, with everyone out there suffering from anxiety is that uh, we can all sort of reach this this place now, which I'm sort of fortunate enough to find myself in. It's um, it's a really, really weird one here, but yeah, we'll, uh, we'll see how we go. So here we go, we're crossing the, uh, the main road here and we're just about to step onto the cobblestones, the very personally famous cobblestones here, of which, oh, and I'll see if we can get, uh, there it is, look at that, beautiful, beautiful. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So uh, yeah, a lot of, uh, I guess, painful memories here for me, but um, they're, you know, I mean, it's, it's all past experience and it's all, I guess, adversity faced and, and, and pushed through now, and it feels, feels great to be walking here uh, on the other side, like I said before. So uh, hopefully today, guys, you'll 
get a little uh, get a little bit more knowledge about the psychologist's perspective of anxiety, what it is, how it's treated, um, I guess professionally, and then how that sort of intertwines with uh, myself and, and what I tend to do. So we'll uh, see how we go. Um, I guess we can introduce it now, just by going. Uh, well, welcome, welcome, <laughs> welcome to your own place. <laughs> yeah, it feels um, feels pretty weird being um, back in the very same room we always we always spoke about. I just did a, a little shot of walking down the the cobblestones with like a bit of a sense of nostalgia and all that sort of stuff, but it was good. Yeah, did yeah. Enjoy it. Um, so, did you want to just introduce yourself really quickly, Mark? Okay. So yes, um, I'm Mark Wingless. I'm the director and owner um, of the Mine Room here. Um, I originally was a, a more general psychologist and worked in different fields, obviously around drug and alcohol, mental mm. health and so on and so forth, dual diagnosis, and then we did my retraining and did uh, my Masters of Sports Psychology. So now that's my specialisation, I spend more time in sport and performance, mm. um, but I still do some of my general and clinical clients um, whilst I'm working here with my own. And um, do you find that a lot of the stuff in sports psychology, this is a bit of a tangent, but uh, do you find a lot of the stuff in sports psychology um, comes back to, to general anxiety issues and general sort of mental health stuff, or is it a bit different? Uh, can so I generally split up into two. Yep. So if you put one half, that they're, they're, they're going through the same things that um, other community members are going through yep. around mental health and well-being. Like yep. I, don't, I don't think there's difference. There's different um, issues they have to deal with in terms of what are presented to them, being mm-hmm. maybe known professional athletes. Yep. But typically, the, the, the percentage of people going through mental health um, symptomology in sport is the same as any other community. So yeah. you know, I don't really yeah. separate that. So yes, much. yes. But in terms of my work though, the other half is is clearly different, mm. meaning that they're wanting to work on the mental side of their performance. Yeah. So for example, some people can have no anxiety in their general day-to-day life, mm. um, but be quite highly anxious around their performance. That makes sense, definitely, yeah. However, what I would say is there is a relationship that if they do have more uh, clinical or generalised anxiety, they're more likely to have performance anxiety. Yeah, it so carries over. That's not always the case. Yes, yes, for sure. I mean, that definitely happened with me, for sure. Like, I, I started to notice it on field, playing footy, and then I was like, oh, fuck, there's actually a bigger issue at hand here. Yeah. But, um... Just to sort of bring it back, I'm not sure if you remember, but um, just to give all the, the, the watchers at home um, a bit of an idea of where I was um, when I first came to you. Um, is that something you could shed some light on, or this is not confidential now because it's all public? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Look, I think um, my, my recollection of you when you first came in mm. um, was that you were, you were a bit confused, not sure what was happening with you. You knew mm. something was occurring, and I think you were very, your symptoms, and this happens with anxiety, yep. were, were very physical. So you could feel it in your body, but not really understand what was going on Absolutely. Um, cognitively. Mm. Um, and anxiety does work that way. Um, and so I think it took a bit of what I call psychoeducation mm. around what the anxiety presentation was, mm. whether it's about perfectionism, whether it's about control, whether it's about um, social approval, etc., etc. Yes. Um, and so once you had a bit of an idea about what the anxiety was, and so what was actually going on in your body, it was easy for you to identify as what's going with me psychological. How do I take better care of this? Definitely, yeah. <laughs> uh, it was. Um, it's funny. I remember that, that chair was there, and I, I would always sit here. And it was, yeah, it was. It was a good. Uh, I found the the emails back it was like early to to mid two thousand fourteen. But um, you hit the nail on the head. It was. I just didn't know what was going on, and I. I think out of everything we spoke about, I remember um, one line which you just sort of kind of played devil's advocate a little bit with me and it really kind of stunned me. It was um, it was a thing I remember coming in I was just seriously panicking that whole time and I walked in 
and I, I think I said to you something like, I fucking just wish I could control my thoughts and they just, they just piss me off so much, you know? And you kind of just looked at me very sort of neutrally and you just said, why do you feel like you have to control your thoughts? And um, I guess that kind of goes into mindfulness and, and all that sort of thing. Because I, I made mention of how good it would be to be like a Buddhist monk, <laughs> just be like, you know, just king, king of the mental world. Um, but it's that thing of understanding how, how thoughts are uncontrollable, yet the emotions we, we um, set in place in response to those thoughts can be controlled, and, and that's in response to mindfulness and all that sort of, uh, and all that sort of thing. Is that, a, is that a largely unknown concept? Uh, what do you mean unknown to whom? Well, do, do, people, do people often sort of convolute the differences between you know, controlling thoughts and controlling emotions and wanting yeah. to just have it, everything set in place? And... Look, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take a step back before I take a step forward. So for me, um, you can always continue continuum that mm. all of us are on, are on between being psychologically flexible versus psychologically rigid. Mm. <clears throat> and when we want to do things like control our thoughts, mm. Um, that puts us more on the rigid part of the continuum. Yeah. So the higher rigidity we are, the more prone we are to mental health symptoms such as anxiety. Mm. So for me, um, trying to exercise control on the environment around you and, and other people around you um, actually causes you to have much more rigid beliefs about how the world can work yeah. and therefore it, it can tie you up more in knots. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Where the people who are more psychologically flexible, where they feel like they need to be in control mm. and they can know that they can kind of adapt to different parts of the environment for other people, um, they're a lot more relaxed and, and are a lot more in the moment. Yeah. Because they're not trying to plan ahead too far. Mm. Um, so they're allowing things to come to them. They know quite quite confidently that they'll be able to, be able to adapt in time. Yeah, because I, I mean, for me, it was definitely always a thing of. The, the more certain I had to be about things, the more anxious I became, and that's obviously when my OCD started to um, develop a little bit more. But it's a hard thing to, to be okay with, you know, uncertainty and all that sort of stuff. And, and it's counterintuitive. Oh, it's extremely counterintuitive. When we're anxious, it probably also suggests that we just care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this is the ironic part around performance, is I find is they're anxious around their performance because they really care. Yeah. They really want to do well for their own pride. Yes. They also they care for their teammates and, and so on and the club that they play for, mm. et cetera, et cetera. So the, the hard part is really, well, you know, remember our emotions are indicators to us mm. how much we care about things yeah. in the environment or the world we live in. So sometimes when we want to control it's because we care about that. Mm. So for example, you're writing a book right now. Yep. You want it to go really well. Yeah. So of course there's going to be some sort of stress on that. Yeah, there's a bit there. <laughs> Trying to meditate. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, there's a bit there's a bit of that. I guess that's what started the um, this sort of movement to try to get more people interested in, in what I'm doing, what I learned from you and, and all that sort of thing. But yeah, it's bloody hard. And what about um so let's let's talk about the um, the quick definition, I guess, of or the professional definition of, of what anxiety is. because um, I've got my own Definition, I guess. I guess that's somewhat based on the definition. But uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Let's hear yours first. Well, I guess my uh, I, I I view anxiety as as an emotion and a, an, an evolved sense. I think um, one of my perspectives or one of the things I want to change is that the world don't no longer views anxiety as a disorder. It's just something. It's an emotion like happiness and like like um, you know getting excited and getting joyful and all this sort of stuff. And sometimes. Like any other emotion, you can get a little bit out of whack, and that's just about fine-tuning that. But anxiety should not be labelled like like a cup or like a chair, or it's like it's not a disorder. It's just mm. something that a disorder is something that can happen as a result of 
out of whack anxiety, I guess, yeah. Okay. So that's about a 4,000 word definition of anxiety, <laughs> mate. <laughs> well, I agree with part of it. I yeah. Mean, look, and then maybe the, I think what you're trying to say is, you're quite right, anxiety is an emotion first and foremost. Yeah. So as humans, we're going to have a range of emotions. And this is the hard part around the prevalence around depression, being sadness and anxiety, obviously being anxiousness. Absolutely. Um, is it's an everyday human emotion. Mm. So the fact that we experience it does not make us depressed, doesn't mean we have a disorder. Yeah. Okay? So and anxiety, there's always going to be anxiety. But anxiety actually works for us. Yeah. It's our survival mechanism. Yes. Now without, without anxiety, we would we would step in step across the road in front of cars. Mm. It's our anxiety type system that says, right, you're in you're in danger here, mm. pull back from the road. Yeah. yeah. So we actually need it. Yes. So it's it's not something that in itself is an issue. Mm. But how much does it dictate some of our everyday movements? So for me, it is still a disorder. Yeah. Because if it stops people leaving the house, mm. being able to get on public transport, to be able to go into work, whether it's going to be social crowds or environments, because mm. they have to get the train there to where you're going to people, etc., etc. Mm. Then it is a disorder because it stops their everyday human function. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So it, it's blurry, but well, not that blurry, but it. To make it, I'll clarify better. Sure. If it stops your day-to-day functioning over a period of time, now the basis that we diagnose a disorder is two or more weeks. Okay. So if it's consistent for two or more weeks, it's actually the way of your everyday functioning, mm. then it's considered a disorder. Wow. Otherwise, it's considered, um, otherwise it's considered anxiety that of just the emotion. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So I'm a bit nervous about to do a, I have to do a presentation in front of work today for yeah. 15 minutes. Or... Well, what if you were nervous about a presentation that was two weeks in one day, have you? <laughs> <laughs> what would you do there? Well, well, then that's a serious issue, mate. <laughs> well, yeah, obviously two weeks. Yeah. It's, it's a you don't make again. We don't have rigid guidelines and such. But it's almost yeah. like I'll use a comparison of well, do you have depression if you're uh, sad or you're grieving over someone's death mm. for mm. a period of more than two weeks after they died? Yeah, now I would say you're not depressed. You're still mm. grieving over that death because that person was really important to you. Mm. It can be the same in such a, a big event that you're coming up. Yeah. Um, and again, I've got obviously I work with performance. So recently I had comedians for the comedy festival. Mm. You know, um, okay. that was a really big event that created a lot of stress and anxiety for them. Mm. But I wouldn't say I wouldn't disorder unless yes. they could get on stage. Yes, exactly. Unless it stopped them doing from what they were sought out to do. I guess yeah. And what um what about some of the the high levels of anxiety disorders? What do you typically see with with people and and um. You know, just so just to give people a um, a better perspective and maybe a clear indication of what they may have or may not have. Yeah. Um, I guess if we can go from like the the, the moderate sort of anxiety mm-hmm. to um to, to the more severe or the typical indicators. Oh, so you can go to something in different types of anxiety disorders. Oh, you, I definitely want to go into that. Yeah, we'll see okay. how my uh, yeah, <laughs> seven minute worth of battery finishes up here. Yeah, yeah, maybe the types of indicators first and then the types of disorders. Yeah, yeah something like that. Okay, so in terms of severity, yeah. you know, like we, I guess the stages of kind of go through a, you know, new, mild, moderate, severe, extremely severe. Mm. Um, and what are the different indicators? Look, I mean, again, it's the, the amount of disturbance that's created for that person. I know that's a bit of a blurry term. Sure. Um, it's almost as much as prevalence and intensity to what mm. they're going through in terms of their symptoms. So it's a very, it's very subjective in nature. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, if someone. I'm just trying to think if someone came to the room now and described what they were going through. Mm. It would be quite easy for me to say whereabouts they would be. Yes. You know, so I'll go to the extreme end for start with, so panic, panic attacks. Yep. So panic attacks takes us to the severe end. Straight away. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
but they're very acute as yes. well. Yeah. But then obviously the, the tricky part around um, panic attacks are they're so disturbing mm. at the moment, and you can dash for this. Shocking. That people get scared of having the panic attacks. Well, that's, I became fearful of the fear. That's Always. Right. Yeah. In fact, I just, sorry to cut you off, but I just made a video before about, um, about a fear I had of public speaking when I still had that, all that habitual anxiety. And because the panic attack and the panic attack occurred 30 seconds into when I was making a speech, every time after that, around the 30 second mark, it would start to happen again. Yep. And I just, looking back on it now, I said, how amazing is it of how well your anxiety takes on those habits to keep you away from what it thinks is a danger. Yep. Um, when all in fact it was, is just a habitual thing, you know? Yep. Anyway. No, no, so look, I've had a client before, and uh, this is really sad to talk about, but um, he had a pain attack at um, a horse racing track. Right. And uh, he, and I was him 25 years later. 25 years. Wow. And he still hadn't, he could never go back to, well, worse than not being able to go to the horse track, because that wouldn't have been a huge issue if he couldn't. Yeah. Um, unless that was his profession. Yeah, exactly. um, but, uh, but he was agoraphobic, which means he couldn't leave the house. Really? Couldn't, so yeah, it was really, really sad. Like mm. he, and he ended up developing a, an alcohol dependence okay. yeah. to leave the house. So it was either drinking and leaving or staying inside all day. Yeah. It was, a, it was 25 years I saw him after the initial panic attack. Mm. And when I actually zeroed in on what was the actual fear, mm. it was that one panic attack that he had 25 years ago. That was it. That was it. And that just set precedence for a higher set level of anxiety. Oh, poor bastard. Is he better now? <laughs> you know, uh, so. Yeah, you know, he was when I had finished with him. Yeah. He produced alcohol and was able to do, I would say, the basic human mm. things like go to shops, get on right. buses, um, and so on and so forth. Mm. And socialise a little bit, like get out of the house and yeah. interact with family members and so on. Um, uh, but I don't know if he passed out. I'm saying that was quite some time ago. Sure. Mm. Um, and yeah, what about just, um, just quickly, um, we'll definitely do this again, but. Yeah. Uh, just while my battery's sort of running on Loki. Yeah. Um, the, the types of anxiety disorders, because I, I may mention a few, but um, I'm sure you have a better understanding of it. So the most common one is generalized anxiety disorder. So what we, I guess the best way to narrow it down, the general worry is there's a lot of anxiety in different types of things and different types of environments. As we just touched on then, there's panic disorder. So yeah. panic disorder is purely simply about anxious about being having another panic attack. Sure. Now that might sound um, a little bit odd when you think about it, as you said, mm. you didn't go back to, you didn't want to go back to that environment, mm. public speaking, um, because of that one panic attack. So it could potentially interrupt your day to day functioning. Definitely. Yeah. And you're still fearful of actual fear. Yeah. So panic is actually quite common mm. amongst us, where the panic attack is so disturbing that we won't put ourselves in a situation where we might have another one. Mm. So as you can imagine, as I said about my client before, can develop into agoraphobia. Because they're so scared of that happening again, they'll just stay inside the house that's safe. Yes, it's certain. It's, yeah. it's non-volatile. Yeah. So there's three there. Mm. I think the other really, really common one we have is uh, social anxiety. Sure. So fear of approval from other people yeah. in social situations. Now, that can, be, um, that can be even close to family and friends. It can be colleagues at work. Mm. It can be people down the street. In everyday life, but social is huge. Yeah, we are a hugely social conscientious yeah. society yeah. right now. When I um I I believe it kind of comes from I mean this whole thing of evolution and you know if you if you're not with the group you're away from the group and back in the in the early stages or the primal stages that kind of meant isolation and, mm. and a greater um, chance for you to 
find yourself in danger because mm-hmm. you know without without a pack or a herd you you by yourself it's, you know, you're doing something to do with that or, yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. And if you think of the evolution side of things uh, you know it's kind of interesting because as a society we could be more connected than ever in terms mm. of being able to contact each other, mm. but how many of them are real, uh, are real, uh, genuine contacts and Absolutely. connections and engagements yeah. versus superficial ones? Definitely. Um, and that's the ongoing question we're going through with the mm. next generation coming up in the world they live in. Yeah. And have we seen like a linear rise in sort of mental health issues with that social media increase? And, yep. Yeah. I believe so. Well, yeah. I mm. think it's. In the generation coming through, like young teenagers up to the age of 25, I think it's prevalent. It's, it's definitely a factor. Yeah. So this sort of stuff is fun. Yeah. More and more important, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah. well um, I uh, really fucking don't want to finish this right now, but um, I think we're going to have to because my camera's going to die. Um, surely we can book in another session? We can. <laughs> All right. Until next time, mate. All right, Tom. Beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> So that is uh, part one of my interview with the great man, Michael Inglis. Uh, purely because my camera is literally about to fucking die here. Stay tuned for part two and we'll go into the more nitty gritty stuff of, uh, of anxiety and, um, and, uh, and what he does with uh, mindfulness and all that sort of thing. Uh, boy. Round two with uh, Michael Inglis. I'm fucking late as shit. Uh, I'm always late. It's shocking. I always feel like I'm super late and tired. Um, but because that's the thing, I don't know what that means. Uh, yeah, I always feel like I'm super late and tired. Today we are going to talk about how to cure OCD, how to cure anxiety, what these sort of clinical approaches. And um, I can't wait to catch up with uh, with a great man himself. So. Yeah, see that's cool. Because I, yeah, my my thing is just um, trying to, uh, like I said when we had a chat over the phone, it's just trying to monetize what I'm doing. And um, I don't know the legal. Like I'd love to um, eventually sort of have clients so I can just chat about and that sort of stuff. But uh, there's probably a few legality issues there. And I mean, I, I don't have a yeah. um, a psychology degree or anything. So like, hey, I can probably try to help you out a bit. I've uh, got no experience whatsoever. So um, yeah, pay me a thousand dollars and we'll go over there. <laughs> all right, well, should we, uh, should we kick you go. it? Yep. All right, well, um, so welcome back for all the uh, viewers at home. Uh, we're sitting here with a great man, Michael Inglis, again. Um, we're gonna go for part two of our, of our chat. And I think we touched on last time about, you know, just what, what the definition of anxiety was from a clinical perspective and, and little intricacies it takes on in terms of OCD and all that sort of stuff. But I guess it'd be good to talk about what the clinical approach is to curing these things. So now we know what they are, how do we fucking get rid of them? Yep. <laughs> so let's just give you a, a case study. Someone comes in um, with a with generalized anxiety disorder. They're talking about all these things that sort of caused it or, and, or they may not even know what they have. Yep. Um, what would you sort of, approach be to that. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Yeah, so obviously what and what happened to your eye, man? You okay? You got a scratch. <laughs> yeah, you got a scratch. Yeah. yeah. That was just me. I was, you know, yeah, running a little bit late, but I was <laughs> 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 Um uh, so yeah, the different type of treatment. So I mean, when we talk about treatments, mm. I mean obviously we're talking mostly a psychologist view, of but course. a little bit broadly is and I'm going to talk about uh, there's two different forms of uh, treatment I guess for mental health. Mm. Um, medication or psychotherapy, or, or mm. psychological therapy, or yep. a particular course. 
It doesn't mean that other things don't work. So if you like kinesiology or Reiki or whatever that might be, does that just say, and there's something spiritual that you believe in that you believe works for you? We're not saying that that's not a treatment. We're just mm. saying that um, there's no scientific evidence behind it. Yeah. So two treatments are medication and um, psychological therapy or psychological treatment. For anxiety, really, you know, it's, and it just be more psychological treatment anyway, mm. mainly because the type of medication you get for anxiety from your GP or psychiatrist um, can be can, are, are addictive. Yeah, 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 very much so. Yeah. So, um, and there's been issues around that. So, mm. as opposed to depression, depression, antidepressants, it's more likely to be medication to use and okay. anxiety. So, it's yeah. probably just good to know that. Definitely, definitely. It doesn't mean that um, anti anxiety treatment can't be used in medication for the, like, those really extreme cases where people experience some strong panic attacks. Yeah. Um, they need that medication to help them or some sort of support mechanism. Mm. Um, it's the ones where they need to have them every day. They yeah. build high tolerance to become addictive, blah, blah, blah which can remove. So, yeah. I guess what I'm trying to highlight here is that anxiety, it's, it plays a, medication plays a more minor role. Yep. So therefore, psychological therapy takes a greater role. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's approach. Yes. Um, the, other, the other component around psychological therapy or with anxiety in the presentation, it's a lot more physical in yep. terms of its symptoms. Mm. Um, a lot of muscle tension, a lot of breathlessness, a lot of heart palpitation. All the good stuff. All the good stuff. Yeah. So one easy way to know if you're anxious is actually pick your physical symptoms. Yeah. More than your cognitive ones. Yes. Um, as yeah. much as anything. So therefore, the physical treatment yeah. is absolutely really, really important. Yeah, well. absolutely. And so, what what are some um, treatments for the for the physical symptoms? Well, I think there's two key ones. I mean, there are two kind of key ones I kind of prescribe, if you like, yeah. to, to clients. Is a exercise or activity for sure. Yeah, that's. Do you get a lot of people that are sedentary? Yep. Oh right. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Well, the other part is when you become more anxious, you become um, less active. Yeah. So you, you, yeah, you, you really do. Yeah. yeah, you it's become quite instinctual. Yeah. A, um, obviously your mood is lower, but B, um, it's less safe mm. as well to go out and or put yourself in the public eye like a gym or a class. Yeah. Or um, you may yeah, some of your anxiety might be related to being looked outside. Yeah. So um, or being judged or assessed by other people. Mm. So um, people become less active mm. a lot of the time. Mm. Um, which actually perpetuates the symptoms further. Yeah. So activity, but you, an activity that makes you sweat. Yes. yes. So that's why. Um, a couple of reasons. Like I, I reckon there's a bit of that kind of nervous energy that clients feel mm. when they're anxious. Mm. It's actually really good to to get rid of that nervous energy, so yeah. the, the body feels calmer yes. after exercise. But also you the endorphin serotonin release. Um, well, it's funny because what I, what I only recently found out, I think, is that. Um, when you're shaking that, that, that in itself is releasing nervous tension. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not actually, you know, when you look at someone on stage giving a speech or something, they're like, oh fuck, they're, they're shaking, they're, they're really nervous. Yep. It's actually the body releasing all that nervous tension out. Yep. So it'd be, uh, exercise to me makes a lot of sense and to do that in a productive way, yep. to do vigorous exercise. And then like you said, you get all that hormone um, release benefit as well, which is great, yeah. Yep. yeah. And then quite the opposite, the other, the other physical activity to teach people um, is breathing and yes. or mindfulness. Yes. And breathing and mindfulness come together mm. um, and meditation so on. Uh, but breathing is still the first point of call of the learn. Yep. Why? Because if we learn how to breathe more effectively or know how to intervene just by breathing, mm. um, it actually calms both the cognitive, like the prefrontal cortex, um, and the body mm. simultaneously. Yeah. So when there's a little part of the brain called the amygdala, 
and um, what that's where the breathing part kind of activates, mm -hmm. actually slows down the mind, slows down the body. So if you actually the act of breathing itself, or knowing how to do it, a when you feel anxious, or mm -hmm. b just doing everyday life so you don't have this higher level of anxiety, yeah, really, yeah, um, is is really important. Well, that's really interesting to me because um, obviously you know we've known each other for quite a while. Um, obviously as a client and more of as a well, I would say business partner, yeah, <laughs> as a friend more than you know. Um, after the aftermath, but um, I feel like there's a big distinction between like the, the the clinical approach and then like the the mindfulness approach. But clearly, well, this place is called the mind room. But um, is that is that almost like a niche you guys are doing where you try to bring those two together? Because it sounds like that's not a, a normal thing. Well, um, incorporating it's not the skill of mindfulness. Yeah, yeah, like almost like the skill of meditation, mm. mindfulness. Oh uh, no, this. Well, I think mindfulness in itself is becoming broader and broader. Yeah. In yeah. our day to day life, yes. wherever we go. I think there's a lot of teachers out there. Yeah. Um, into the psychologist teacher, I think there's a lot of them out there. Um, but it may not be the baseline of their approach or they may not be as open about it or actually I mean for us what was really, really important, what we wanted, um, we, we wanted to be more than just a I guess a therapy mm. place. I mean yeah. understanding the therapy is part of it, that's why we do the one on one stuff. Yeah. But what uh, what we what we believe was we have to give people skills. Yes. And so mindfulness is a skill that you can A, teach and B, learn mm. um, in our current relationship that's also helpful for mental health oh, yeah. and also helpful for whatever the presenting issues are coming through the door. So, and it's, and it's very um, flexible that you can use in different sources. Yeah. So, I mean, mindfulness is one particular skill. It's a primary skill because it, it works in different, in different ways. Yeah. But we, that's our, I guess, our template for what we want to provide is yeah. actually skills, not just listening, understanding, Providing feedback is yeah skill based approach. Yes, it's yes. Important. It just reminded me of that phrase. It's like um, give a man a fish oil for a day, teach a man how to fish and get hungry, teach a man mindfulness, and uh, <laughs> no, I think that's on that. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Oh, okay, so how, how would you? Because I kind of remember what we what we went through. But how did you? How would you teach someone mindfulness? Because oh. I think when I've spoken to some people, they kind of go, oh, they say, oh, you know, what is meditation? How do you do this? And I'm like, oh, you know, just focus on your breath. Like, you know, yeah, yeah, what yeah. is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you, you would, you, that's right. So you, I'd probably do breathing first, yeah. and then the attention to the breath, which is the first part of mindfulness, mm. would be part two. Yeah. And then you extend to body, which is super important. Yeah. Um, and then you might even go to emotions with anxiety. So different, whatever, mm. um, different presentations have different kind of uh, ways of approach. Yeah. But what's the what's really really important to you to understand what is happening with you. Mm. So. The, the, the thing that I find most around anxiety-based clients or, or approach uh, presentations is that they're actually more fearful of the anxiety than the anxiety itself. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely, yep. Because we almost build it up to be this great big scary monster yeah. that's inside of us yeah. that we need to run away from. Yes. Where mindfulness actually, tell, actually teaches us the opposite. Yeah, well, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. It actually tells you to look at it closer, actually almost, almost join and be framed. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Know and understand more about it, yep. and then you demystify the stigma of it all. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Within yourself, which yeah. is obviously the most important thing. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating one. So you um, flip it around, really. Yeah. Um, and you basically become, you understanding it better, because you, and accepting it for what it is. Mm actually gives you empowerment over it. Oh, massively, yeah. But just to go along with it. So why why does that happen? Why do, why do we become fearful of the fear? <laughs> well, I mean, this is the other part of it. And so when you talk about the, the treatment approach, one of the 
before I've done all these things around exercise and breathing and so on, yeah. I actually whiteboard, you can see my whiteboards in the rooms, we actually whiteboard exactly what is happening. Yep. So from the trigger, whatever the trigger might be, such yeah. as going outside in a social situation, to what are the thoughts that are attached to it, mm. what are the emotional anxieties key there. Mm. Um, but also, what's, so what's happening within our body, what's going into our mind, obviously emotions, anxiety, but then how do we behave and how do they really link? Mm. So if we, I guess what I'm saying is psychoeducation is important. Yeah. What that means is if you've got to explain, like it's like, it's like school, you explain exactly what's happening yeah. from the mind to the body to the actual behavior and response mm. for them to understand why they're why they're feeling the way they feel. Yeah, exactly. So once yeah. they have a full understanding about what that's about, then you can actually teach them intervention. Yes, yes, yeah. And is it, is it uh, from a personal perspective or what you can try to help them with? No, no, it's from what I can help them with. It's from yeah. their perspective, really. Yeah, yes. So when you say personal perspective, you mean the client. Yeah, yeah. from the client. Yeah, 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 yeah. From their world. So you're almost entering, you step into their world and yeah. see through their eyes what it's like. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And I guess the, the well, the easy thing with anxiety is that there are so many common characteristics where you can sort of like, if they're saying something, oh, you know, it's, it's causing this and it's causing this, you can sort of tell if they're on the right track if they're, they're off it still, you know? Yeah. So what about in the case of like, um, people that try to push it away all the time and I guess shut it down. I wouldn't say the word denial, but like if they're, they're not, they can't see what's going on um, through all this, how would you sort of approach that? Is it just continuing with the breathing and that? Or? Um, they're in denial that they're experiencing the anxiety. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, they're trying to, because um, I, I think the, the first thing for me that was really good was I was able to sort of accept that I've got an issue yeah. and then really try to see where the root cause of it was and then open the box. Yeah. But like if people that feel like outside of the box, you can't, they can't um, get healthier because they're not, they can't see the issue. Yeah, yeah look, it's a good point. I, look, I think <coughs> it's hard for me to kind of really comment on that because most of the people that come in, you know something going on. Yeah, oh, so yeah. The reason yes. it's, it's they're all, like it's, if they were mandatory, like I'm going to come here for, which I've had the experience of, you know, from court-based orders mm. or, you know, their parents have sent them in or yeah. their partner has sent them in. So yeah. I've had that experience. Yeah. Um, so yeah, let's work with that because it aligns with your question where they've mm. kind of been told they've got to come in. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. There are some related persons are happy with them. Um, <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So yeah, you need to explain well why is it, you know, in the end, you try and, I mean, it's all about motivation and interviewing, mm. what is it that you want to change? Yeah, yeah. If it's nothing, then unfortunately I've got very little to work with. Well, yeah, yeah. If they don't want to accept it, well, yeah, if they don't feel like they have an issue, then what can you do, really, yeah. But even if it's like, Look, I identified that my relationship with my partner is not ideal and I want to get better. Yeah. Then it gives me some leverage. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And if something builds on that, great. But if that's the only goal we've got in the room, then we can talk about maybe how the role of anxiety how it plays into it. Yeah. So, for example, yeah. and it happens a lot in partnerships mm. because um, the fear or the anxiety might be you're going to leave me mm. because he might have had some previous abandonment mm. issues. Mm. So, I might be coming, I might be really irritable towards you, but I'm actually just really scared you're going to go. Yeah. So I'm, I'm clutching onto you stronger. Mm. I'm more desperate to have you. So therefore it comes out of my behavior, but that doesn't mean I'll be seeing anxiety. No, yeah, that, yeah, it's just any sort of strong emotion. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, well, that's a really interesting point is that mental health isn't always anxiety, depression. It's just sort of any overwhelming emotion that interferes with, with your life, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just think- Do you have people that come here with anger management issues and stuff? Or? Oh yeah, yeah. anger is a massive one. I think anger is probably the most um, incorrectly you know, diagnosed um, presentations. Yeah. 
Because it's actually, anger comes a lot from anxiety and depressive symptoms. Yes, definitely. It's just this, what we call the secondary emotion yep. or what we display to the world. So we find men um, are much better being angry than sad. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> go us. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, it's really hard because obviously when we display anger, um, and this is what I try and teach groups of people when we're talking about this, is that although understandably, when you see someone angry, you're just like, whoa, yeah. stay out of their way. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually a bit of a sign. Yeah. Maybe that's what they're actually saying is I need help. Yes, yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about medication as well because in, in my eyes, and I guess obviously I've only got an anecdotal experience with this and I've only, I'm only seeing, I just interviewed a uh, former heroin addict who's a, who's a friend of mine and I really want to get into like, oh, that's oh yeah, 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 it was really fascinating because yeah. I've known him for a while but um, Jokes make mental health very fascinating in terms of the complexity. Yes, mm. yeah, I mean I, I know like with mine with the hallucinogenics like it was one way of it but um, yeah. I didn't come to drugs. Um, for an escape, mm. like they sort of like triggered this level of anxiety, and then I started using as a little bit of a means of escape, but it wasn't ridiculous. Um, but uh, yeah, I want to like things to know, weren't you with that? Yeah, because that that triggered your anxiety quite greatly. Oh yeah, because your experience in that state. Yes, and then because anxiety is about fear. Yeah, and suddenly your perception of the world became immensely the world is now scary after this experience. Yeah, absolutely. Where before that, I don't. Think you saw in that light? Well, no, I didn't, but I, I still say it was like in my book, it was like the, the best thing that ever happened to me because although it sent me on down, down this super volatile road, um, there were there were very significant underlying things within my own life that I just wasn't even aware of. And that's why it was good to talk about that denial stage or like talking to someone that doesn't even feel like they have an issue. Like I, I first came to you because I was super anxious, didn't even know the word anxious, but I was super annoyed at myself every time I would go into a footy field. Mm -hmm. And I, I was always performing terribly. And we started going down, you know, habitual things that I could do before I could go and all this sort of stuff. And it helped tons. But I still felt like I, I was a perfectionist and I couldn't, I could not for the life of me be happy. Like yeah. I didn't even know what happy, happiness was. I thought it would mean the AFL, you know. <clears throat> um, so when the mushrooms happened and all the hallucinogenics and the drugs and stuff, um, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because it literally ripped me from the inside out mm -hmm. and showed me what the hell I'm doing wrong and yeah. what I need to do right, you know? Yeah. So it was great. Yeah. <laughs> it was really good. Yeah. But, um, so you're going to meet your friend with, uh, who's... Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, so, but, yeah, so I'm just trying to um, gain perspective because, you know, I've got a very good experience with anxiety, but it's one experience with anxiety. People get it for a multitude of reasons. But um, what I wanted to talk about was medication because mm. in my eyes and from my experience, mm. I would look at medication as like a a band-aid effect like you put it on whilst you're dealing with yourself mm. and then once you've sorted yourself out then you can take the band-aid off mm. but I mean there are some people that have been on medication um, specifically antidepressants and valium and stuff for, for years and years mm. and I kind of feel like when someone's in such a fragile state mm. they'll look at anything to help them out I mean just because a drug's regulated and legal doesn't mean it's anything better in terms of fixing the root issue yeah. uh, I just want to hear your opinion on, on yeah yeah well heroin is a different very very much so <laughs> well I mean funny, heroin is um it's a hard like was your friend was, what's his uh, what was his uh, medication that he was on oh so he uh, I think it was Oxycontin yeah um from from memory yeah but his his issue was literally drug addiction okay and then he came off um and then started going down the path, but yeah. And we find like, and I'm just gonna use, well, heroin's an example, but cannabis is another. Yeah. And alcohol. Yeah. 
people who are on those copper substances, because they're all downers, mm. right? Mm. Um, they find when they <clears> come <throat> off it, when they withdraw off it, and sometimes these substance use or substance addictions can cause the anxiety. Mm. And the reason why is because they're downers, mm. so they're relaxed when they take them, right? Yeah. So you remove that relaxant, what happens? You're in an elevated state. Yeah. So, which other people either believe or perceive they've got anxiety, or they actually really do. Yeah. Um, so, therefore, they find they need to go back to the substance to help yeah. calm them down again. Yeah. Find that I see a lot. I saw it when I did my drug and alcohol days. I mm. saw it a lot in cannabis clients. Mm. Oh, really? You know, so, then, is that just know, because of where we are, or the social demographic you were dealing with? Uh, no. Yeah, it was just in general. General. Wow. Was, yeah, yeah. Um, cannabis had a lot more anxiety presentation than mm. anything else. I mean, heroin had its own issues. Yeah, for sure. Um, because of what you need to do to sustain such a habit. Oh, yeah. Where cannabis is obviously doesn't have the same social components to it. But mm. um, yeah, yeah. the cannabis was huge with anxiety. Mm. Huge. That's fascinating. Is that, and yeah, so irrespective of the fact that people thought they needed cannabis to escape their anxiety <laughs> or they needed it because they felt like without it they would have anxiety. Uh, yes, well, either or, or yeah. both. So, yeah. yep, they would use it to self-medicate. Yeah. To self-medicate to their anxiety or whatever it might be. Yes. Um, but also when they withdrew, they would experience anxiety. Anxiety, yeah. Mm. Wow. And so what about the medication, um, the prescription medication in dealing with these issues? Like, what's your <laughs> stance on that? I guess? So, yeah, I, I kind of get a bit of a brief one before. And I should highlight that some antidepressants are used for anxiety. Yep. And some, and I'm not a doctor or a psychiatrist, so I won't go into detail, but um, I know that um, for some anxiety clients, they get them antidepressants, mm. and some antidepressants are better anxiety than others. Right. But for people who have severe anxiety, benzodiazepines are the medication. Yeah. So the Xanax and the Valium and so on and so forth, they're the ones I was talking about. But, okay. Um, addictive if we pick up, we can build a tolerance to them and therefore become addicted to them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so it's a very short term treatment. Yeah. Or you use people who experience panic attacks. Yes. So they can take it and they can just irritably calm down so they get themselves safe again. Yes, yeah, exactly. And then and then the goal would be to, to deal with the issues with psychotherapy yep. or um, mindfulness and stuff. Yeah, in, yeah. Con- in conjunction with the medication. Yeah. If that's where they're started. Yes. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but I think if they start taking it every day, mm. um, it, gets, it gets hard. Very hard, yeah. Because if you're not experiencing the symptoms of anxiety, we can't really put in our psychological intervention. Well, that that's my biggest thing, is yeah. that for me personally, and again, this is only just from my perspective, but <laughs> the, the the times that I look back, you know, in being the, the, the best times for me for, for getting through this were the times I was most afraid, because I needed to feel that, yeah. to sort of go, this sucks, and yeah. this is just awful, and I need to like, I need to know this feeling and understand it so that like, I'll be motivated to not be here. Yeah. But if like you're always feeling on this sort of line of okay or mediocrity, like I don't know, I just wouldn't, for me personally, I wouldn't have any motivation to do anything about it. It's a yeah. balance, isn't it? You've yeah. got to get that, they're going to be a little bit uncomfortable, but not too. Yeah. Because they get yeah. too uncomfortable, they can just flee. Yeah. And um, and go back to where, what they know is best. Yeah. But they need to be challenged, otherwise, otherwise they can't try the, the physical or, or the cognitive interventions that yeah. they want to provide. Them. Exactly. Yeah, and um, so like a a, a rough um, treatment plan does it does it um, differ depending on the person, or would you say yeah less than a year roughly, or completely different? Uh, well, yeah, completely different. Yeah. I mean, and, and you were also talk, you were also talking about anxiety is the only thing that got presented to it to yeah. them. Like, and unfortunately, that's not the case. Yeah, I mean, it might be the primary thing and, yeah. and so on. But um, if look, I've had I've had clients who. Um, 
and you know six sessions is enough yeah you know? oh and then yeah cool yeah we've only had ones for two years so yeah there's a there's a yeah it's hard to even define a timeline yeah um but i think yeah i think anxiety is um it's very treatable mm. as long as you have someone who's motivating the room yeah it's like going yeah a bit of like this is happening to me I want to work through this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I don't want to rely on medication or whatever it is anymore. Yeah, yeah. No, because for me, it was never, um, I mean, I often thought about it, you know, mm. but I just I just felt like I was okay before without medication. I can get through it without medication, you know, like I uh, I remember thinking, oh, now I've got anxiety. My world's going to, you know, that's it. That's it. Like, I'm done. I've got it, you know. It's like, I've got herpes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't. <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah, I just, I think if I can get through it without medication, you can get yourself right again. Um, but that's the other fatalistic thing we do, isn't it? We go, I'll yeah. do this forever. Yeah, I'm done. Just yeah. because I have it now, I'm going to do this forever. Yes, exactly. Or, because I've just treated it, means I don't have to worry about all that other stuff anymore. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's the other thing we find as well. Yeah, well, I mean, like, I'm fully aware that, I mean, there'll be stages in my life that I'll probably get super anxious again, but I just, I've got these great tools in place now where... I can work through it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even things like with a new job and you know, a new relationship and all these sort of things, there's volatile things. Mm-hmm. But um, it's just better to have these processes in place. Like you're not starting from scratch again. Mm-hmm. It's more to do with life experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I'm gonna get you out of here, mate. And by getting out of here, I mean, I'm gonna leave because this is your place. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just wanted to say uh, one more final thing, yeah. uh, one more final question. Where would you like to see um, the sort of general perspective of anxiety and depression mm-hmm. in the sort of next 20 years do you feel like it's come a long way or do you feel like there are certain things that still need to be evolved or? yep yeah it has come a long way um no doubt but what would i like to see mm. I, I would like us to see you know whether where we are the scale of healthy or, or unhealthy and doing mm. our mental health but i would like to see us having um uh, kind of mental health uh, plans or yeah. daily activities and, and some of us do this pretty well, something that we try and teach. Mm. Um, no matter where you are, you know, on the spectrum of health or healthy or unhealthy psychologically. Yeah. But we actually do things, we actually acknowledge that things that we do is for our mental health each day. Yeah. So yeah. I think like, you know, we would, right now, I think we're pretty good for our physical health, you mm. know, looking at diet and, and activity and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And, and we've improved on things like cigarettes and we really improved things like environments. Mm. I think we could actually go, okay, what does I need to do today for my mental health? Yeah. yeah. And actually be quite feeling more comfortable to call it that. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with you. Totally agree. And I think, um, yeah, the, the more we are comfortably able to say things like anxiety, depression, mental health, you know, not feeling okay, all this sort of stuff, the easier it's going to be. Because at the end of the day, it's, it's, I, I feel like mental health is everything, you know, things can go your way and all sort of stuff, but if you're not seeing it in a positive light, you're just not going to be good. You know, no. you're not going to be happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, yeah. Proactive approach. Yeah. Probably. It'd be great to have a workplace to go into and at 10, 30 and three o'clock every day, there's a 15 minute window to do have a meditation room. Yeah, exactly. And it would just be there for, and people would just optionally do it to refresh and restart again. Yeah. But I almost guarantee it would increase productivity. Oh, 100%, 100%, yeah, it'd be good. We should start one. Yeah. <laughs> Always a pleasure, my friend. Thank, Thank you very much. Cool. Well, there you go, that was part two of the interview with Michael Inglis. Um, I absolutely love that guy. He, he seriously knows what he's talking about. He talks in a very relaxed way. Um, he's not intimidating. So, I mean, if you if you are, I'm just gonna plug him for you. If you are in the Melbourne area and you do feel like you sort of just need a bit of a chat or or, uh, or something along those lines, go and 
just go on the on the Mind Room website. It's just themindroom.com.au from memory. Um, it's in Collingwood in Melbourne. It is just a fantastic place. Uh, my mate who uh, is on the podcast with me, AdventureFit Radio, Bill. Bill and I have both been there. Um, obviously, you know my story with it. Um, Bill's been there as well a bunch of times. It's just, it's totally awesome. And I really feel like they're at the forefront of what... Um, psychology or clinical psychology is probably going to look like in the next sort of 10 to 15 years where they're really Im- implementing these skills for people to take home with so that they can uh, combat and reduce their symptoms um, in the long run. It's not just getting rid of the, the, the issue for the time being and then subsequently get back, getting back into it later down the track. It's, uh, it's, it's skills for life, really. I think I said in the interview, it's, um, it's all about, if you, know, if, you teach a, if you give a man a fish, you'll eat for a day. If you teach a man to fish, you'll never go hungry. It's stuff like that they're doing, and I think it's fantastic. Um, but yeah, that was part two, guys. Please hit us up on uh, on social medias. My Instagram is tom.ahern, A-H-E-R-N for Nirvana. Uh, Facebook, all that sort of thing. And then obviously the YouTube channel, guys. I really love reading your comments, and I know I keep saying it a lot, but I'm genuinely, genuinely overwhelmed by, by the feedback I've been getting. So um, it's exciting. Yeah, I'll speak to your phone. Alrighty guys, I sincerely, sincerely hope you enjoyed that little number there. That was with, again, uh, my good friend Michael, former psychologist. See, he's still a current uh, psychologist, which is good fun. (laughs) Guys, uh, if you liked that show, then please don't feel afraid to head to iTunes and subscribe. And whilst you're there, you can give us a little rating and review. I do love reading your comments. Um, I've loved them on the other socials, and I really want to get around the, uh, the iTunes comments now, so... That would be uh, fantastic. And um, as always, guys, the MindMate podcast is brought to you by the MindMates. So you can head to www.themindmate.com to check out all some of the cool stuff we have there. Uh, we're, about, we're about to launch MindFit, which is going to be a good little online training, high-intensity training, functional training uh, thing there for, for all you blokes. And uh, but doesn't mean you, uh, you ladies can't miss out uh, on, the, uh, on the fun of the show here. And uh, we're also going to be doing some educational courses in the next couple of months with related to emotional intelligence, mindfulness, and high-intensity functional training. So head to themindmate.com. I will speak to you next week. Bye-bye.